All right, so we're going to look at, at um, chapters 11 to 15 today of um, that section of the book, at least. We're not going to cover comprehensively or anything those chapters. Um, particularly, I wanted to look at chapters 11 and 12 because I thought they were both helpful and uh, worth talking about. Um, but before we jump into that, for those of you that are reading um, Gentle and Lowly, which I'm sure, I know some of you are, um, I hope many of you are, um, so chapters 11 to 15 are The Emotional Life of Christ, A Tender Friend, Why the Spirit, Father of Mercies, and His Natural Work and His Strange Work, quote-unquote. Um, any questions or comments about those chapters that you want to go to first before we begin to kind of unpack chapters 11 and 12? Anything that stood out in the reading that concerned you or thought was, you thought was particularly helpful or you want to talk about? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I wasn't quite what, sure what to make of that myself. Um, I, um, I understood what he was trying to do there. I think that... Um, so essentially, chapter 15 argues that he tries to make a distinction. Um, he uses uh, the verse in Lamentations 3.33, where... Um, the prophet says uh, regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment that's fell upon Jerusalem. Um, For he, that is God, does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And so Dane was trying to make an argument that essentially that what comes from God's heart most naturally is mercy. Um, and judgment, though it is something God wills and is sovereign over, does not come from his heart in the same way. Um, that he doesn't, he doesn't afflict from his heart. Um, and so he, he's basically trying to make the, the point that, um, that what the most natural thing for God because of his character is, is mercy and, and in some sense something that is less natural to his character is judgment. I think I'm trying, just trying to represent his argument. Is that for those of you who read the chapter, does that sound about right? Uh, in terms of what he's trying to say. Um, he also talks about um, a verse in uh, Hosea 11 um, where he talks about um, how he, he is not going to judge uh, or just not, well, he's going to judge, but he's not going to destroy Ephraim, Israel, uh, the northern kingdom. Um, he says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will um, not come in wrath. So, I mean, you can kind of see in my book, like I have a lot of question marks in this chapter um, about, <laughs> about, about things that he wrote. Um, so, yeah, I didn't love that chapter, Donna, personally. Um, I, I understand what, what um, Dane's trying to do in terms of um, talk, and it is certainly true. I think we can speak confidently about mercy. I mean, you know, James talks about mercy triumphs over judgment, um, the Apostle James. Um, you know, you have um, when God, re the Lord reveals himself to Moses, he says that he um, you know, will judge um, the generations, the third and fourth generation of those who 
um, disobey me, but um, my faithfulness for those who are faithful to me is for a thousand generations. Um, and so there are certainly, I think, distinctions that we can make in terms of, um, and, and I think generally speaking, God's mercy is, um, I agree with Dane in that I think the, the mercy of God is the more dominant theme of his character and his um, personhood, his compassion, his grace, his mercy is certainly the dominant theme of the scriptures. Um, I, over and against um, his judgment or his wrath. I, I think what Dane is trying to do and make this, these comments about mercy being his natural work and judgment being his strange work, quote unquote, as though it's unnatural. I mean, that's the contrast, right? I, I don't know, man. I, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that kind of language. And I think, I think he's trying to build a case out of a pretty limited amount of scriptural data um, in Lamentations 3 there. So, Don, I'll give you a second. Mm-hmm. You know, Nadab and Abihu, yep. He takes from Edwards, yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say, Lauren? Yeah, I think, I think, here's what I would say. Um, I think that the, the, um, the relationship between God's judgment and his mercy is mysterious um, in the scriptures. And um, the ways in which those things both are part of his character and his person and his actions in the world. Um, and I, I tend to be one um, who um, wants to be careful, I guess, in terms of, and, and I love Edwards, but anyone who has really read Edwards knows that Edwards loved to speculate about God. Um, like, in really, I mean, it's one of the reasons he's amazing and interesting to read, fascinating. Um, but you know, Edwards never had a theological question about God that he didn't want to try to, you know, get to the bottom of. Um, and and I, I just wonder if this question of how God's judgment and mercy, if we begin to talk, use language like that, that, that mercy is his natural work and, and judgment is his strange work, I can see, I think, where they're going with that, what the argument is, but I, I guess I question just that kind of, those kind of hard and fast division between um, the person and nature of God in that way. And I think, you know, I think this is one of those things in the scriptures where um, we have to hold those things in tension, you know, and we don't fully understand exactly how they relate to one another. But we say God is merciful and gracious and compassionate. God also is just and 
judges um, the world and wicked wickedness particularly. Um, and and I think we have to say both those things at once. And I, I would be cautious about trying to overly reconcile them or you know unpack them in some fundamental way. I you know yeah that's what I would say. With with the caveats I said before, James mercy triumphs over judgment. The you know Exodus thirty three with the revelation of God to Moses, those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, and certainly that Lamentations passage occurs within the context of his relationship to the covenant people, which is a, an interesting, you know, kind of context for that. Dane doesn't really get into that. Yeah. All right, let's, um, let's jump into <coughs> chapter 11. I think this is a helpful chapter, um, and he highlights a work that, that I've read in the past um, several times and have, would commend to you, which is um, a work called the Emotional Life of Our Lord, On the Emotional Life of Our Lord by B.B. Warfield. B.B. Um, Warfield was an old Princeton, one of the last of the old Princeton theologians in America. Um, he um, was a professor at Princeton in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, so sort of was a bridge in a sense between like Hodge um, to Machen. Uh, Machen's the one who left um, Princeton and founded Westminster Seminary. Um, in response to what he perceived to be the liberalism um, that had overtaken um, that institution in his, his time. Um, and so Warfield was kind of, you know, sort of that last old guard at Princeton um, before the, forming, the formation of Westminster. And um, he's a fascinating theologian. Um, and someone that I've, you know, I haven't read everything or anything that by any regard that Warfield's written, but I Warfield's always interesting, I would say. Um, he's kind of one of these guys who's, he often has a little bit of a kind of different take on things. And, you know, he, he operates certainly within the Reformed tradition, but he's also not afraid to, um, to really think deeply about stuff. And certainly I would commend this essay to you, which you can Google and find. I looked again last night and it's still there on the internet, on, um, freely available. So um, if you Google on the emotional life of our Lord, B.B. Warfield, it'll come right up. And, um, and it's, it's a pretty interesting essay. Uh, essentially in that essay, it was written, you know, 100 years ago or more, more than 100 years ago. Um, Warfield is just trying to think about from the data that's in the gospels, what are the kind of emotions that the gospel writers talk about Jesus having and what can we learn about his person from his emotional life, essentially. Um, so it's a really interesting essay. It's actually kind of, you know, it sounds like the kind of essay that would have been written, you know, 10 years ago um, in terms of just that, you know, that approach. But it, you know, 
Warfield was writing it sounded before the times um, in terms of you know the rise of psychology and all those kinds of things um, so it's 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 interesting in that regard and um, I would commend it to you um, so let me just walk through this handout for a minute read some of these quotes um, and we'll talk about that so Ortland says Christ's permanent humanity um, so his humanity not only in his incarnation um, in, on earth, but his continuing incarnation after his resurrection and ascension to heaven, his permanent humanity means that when we see the feeling and passions and affections of the incarnate Christ towards sinners and sufferers as given to us in the four gospels, we are seeing who Jesus is for us today. And I think this is a really significant point, as I say, and is a great argument for reading the gospels, that in the gospels, we find out who Jesus is and who Je and by seeing who Jesus is, as Jesus argues, we find out who the Father is, that Jesus reveals the Father to us in his humanity, um, in his uh, behavior, in his words, in his actions, um, in his emotions even, um, that Jesus reveals the Father and Jesus continues as an incarnate man. And so we know Jesus's posture towards us today by reading the historical record of his life um, in the Gospels, the four Gospels, and that's part of why there are four of them. Um, so whatever it means to be human, Ortland says, and human without sin, Jesus was and is, and emotions are an essential part of being human. Um, so part of Jesus's humanity, part of his revelation of God, are his, is his emotional life, his, um, his passions, his feelings, um, because that's part of what it means to be a human person. And then he um, goes on and begins to quote from Warfield. Um, so this quote is from Warfield. He says, what then do we, Warfield says, what then do we see in the gospels of the emotional life of Jesus? What does a godly emotional life look like? It is an inner life of perfect balance, proportion, and control on the one hand. So Jesus was never out of control in terms of his emotions. Um, but also of extensive depth of feeling on the other hand. Often, you know, we think about emotions, either you're like this really stoic, unemotional person, or you're this, you know, crazy emotional person um, that has no control of your emotions. Um, and I think what Warfield is saying is that Jesus was neither of those things. Um, he um, was the, the perfect, had the perfect maturity in terms of his emotions, that he had emotions, they were there, they were deep, they were significant, but they did not rule over him. He was in control of them. Um, you know, they didn't, they didn't, you know, sort of drive his behavior in, in unhelpful ways. Um, so extensive depth of feeling on the other hand, and, and maybe for some of us, you know, we have an easy time thinking about Jesus having control over his emotions, but I think Warfield rightly points us to that if Jesus was a perfect man, he also had true full, deep emotions. That's part of what it means to be a human person. And for some of us, at least, that may be, that may, that idea of Jesus may not come quite as naturally, right? We can more easily think of Jesus the, the stoic, right, than Jesus the, um, the deeply emotional uh, man. Um, so Warfield goes on, and he really emphasizes um, a couple things about, I mean, it, there's a lot in that essay, and it's worth reading. Uh, Warfield says, the emotion that we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as going through the land, quote, doing good, from Acts 11, is no doubt compassion. 
compassion. In a point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. Jesus' heart responded with a profound feeling of pity for those in need. His compassion fulfilled itself in the outward act. But what is emphasized by the term used to express our Lord's response is the profound internal movement of his emotional nature. And so then there are several passages, which I'll just read to you quickly. You can get an idea of how this works in the Gospels, how frequently the Gospel writers talk about Jesus' compassion. In Matthew 20, um, 20, verses 33 and 34, um, there are two blind men calling out for help from Jesus. Um, The crowd rebukes them. They continue to cry out. Um, Jesus stops called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, or having compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed them. And it's important to think about, you know, why does Matthew put that in um, his record of Jesus's life? And he could have just easily said, and Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. But he adds that idea that Jesus did this out of an emotional response. They had pity, had compassion on these blind men and thus healed them. Um, this is also shows up in Mark chapter 1, um, the story of Jesus cleansing a leper. Um, uh, so the leper comes and kneels before him and asks him, he says, if you will, you can make me clean, he says to Jesus. And then it says, Mark says, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Um, And that word pity there, which is the same word used in Matthew, Dane makes this point, um, which you'll find if you read any commentary on um, these passages in in the Gospels, that the word for compassion there is a, a, more literally what it means is that his, I mean, literally, I think it's bowels is the word, that his bowels um, were were moved, that he, like his inward being, you know, something happened internally in him. Um, that's the kind of, you know, the, the word compassion or pity is more of a sort of metaphorical description of the literal Greek there. Um, it, it really refers to a kind of literal movement inside of his body um, that responded to the person in need. Um, Jesus moved with pity, stretched out his hand, touched the man, and um, he was healed. He was cleansed. And then also in Luke 7, you have a similar story um, 12 to 13, Um, this is uh, the widow's son, dead son. Um, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So a woman who has lost her husband and now um, her son also, um, which, you know, should remind you of a story in the Old Testament. Um, The Naomi has that experience. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Um, he had compassion. That same word is used that his, his innards were moved in response um, to this woman's plight, and this woman's situation. He said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the, the dead man lived and began to speak and was returned to his mother. Um, so those are just some examples, and that, you know, that kind of language is not only in those passages, but others. Jesus' compassion, his emotion um, is referred to in the Gospels again and again. Um, Ortland tells the story about his own experience of compassion. Um, he talks about a, a time in 
um, India, I think, I think it's India, where he was uh, visiting um, to preach or something, teach, and he saw a leper, or, you know, a, what we think of today as a leper, who had lost, which may not exactly be the same thing as the lepers in the Old Testament, um, who had lost, you know, several of his hands, or both his hands, um, was begging in the street. And um, Dane says, what happened in my heart in that moment in response to this very poor and, um, you know, man who had been ravaged by his sickness, his disease. He says, my fallen, what happened in my heart in that moment in response to this man? My fallen, prone to wander heart, compassion, a little anyway. He's honest, right? He had some compassion, but, you know, he didn't do anything for the guy. Not really. Uh, but it was tepid compassion. The fall has ruined me, all of me, including my emotions. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. I think that's a really interesting point that Dane rightly brings out, that part of the damage of sin for us is not just that we're out of control in our emotions, but that we don't feel strongly enough in response to things that should move us, that should um, provoke something within us. Um, so he says, what then must it mean for a sinless man with fully functioning emotions to lay eyes on that leper? Sin restrained my emotions of compassion. What would unrestrained emotions of compassion be like? This is on page 107. This is what Jesus felt, he says, perfect unfiltered compassion. Um, what must that have been like rising up within him? What would perfect pity look like mediated not through a prophetic oracle as in the Old Testament, but through an actual real human? And what if that human were still a human, though now in heaven, and looked at each of us spiritual lepers with unfiltered compassion and outflowing affection, not limited by the sinful self-absorption that restricts our own compassion? Um, do, you see, do you see what St. Dane is arguing there? That this is how Jesus views us. Um, that he actually has compassion on us in ways that we can only sort of imagine, actually, because we don't have compassion on others in that way. Um, our compassion is limited, generally speaking, whereas Jesus is not. So I just have this question. We can talk about other questions if you want, but, but just say, does this surprise you about the gospel's record of Jesus's emotion? Is your picture, your mental picture, your, your sort of spiritual imagination of Jesus's emotion one of compassion towards you? Does this, how does this strike you, this picture that we see in the Gospels that Moorfield and Ortland are both describing. Is it easy for you to see Jesus as compassionate towards you in this way? Any thoughts? I think it's a pretty helpful point that Dane's making here. Um, I think it's, it's helpful exegetically and theologically. Um, that Jesus' compassion for us is not limited um, by our fallenness, our sin, and that he is compassionate towards us in a similar way that he was compassionate towards those who suffered, who he met in his life on earth. Yes, Jeremy. Or not, but yeah. <laughs>
Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. It is. No, it's, that is true. That, that children certainly feel um, just whatever they're feeling um, with more, more fully than adults do often. Um, and I, that is something that's fascinating to think about, about how our kids often seem free with their emotions in ways that we don't. And, um, and part of that is maturity, part of that is growing up, and you can't, you know, be ruled by your emotions, and sometimes children are ruled by their emotions, obviously. But I do wonder about that, that how, you know, what does it look like to not be out of control with our emotions, but also really feel things, right, um, deeply. I think that's a picture of true maturity, emotional maturity. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. But in that in the same um, thought, it's difficult. I can see him having compassion on the blind man standing in front of him yep. physically. Yep. Does he protect him? Yep. Yep. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah. So anyway, that's, yep. that's where I am with, with yeah. your question of how does that strike you? Yep. Uh, yeah, that's a great, res I think it's a helpful response, Donna, and you're really honest about something that I think a lot of us sense and feel intuitively, which is it's one thing for Jesus to have compassion on this blind man or this leper or this widow that he actually stood a few feet from, um, when he was in uh, Israel during the time of his earthly life. But Jesus, um, though he is now um, still human, um, is not the Father's right hand. So what does it mean for him to be close to me and compassionate to me when there's such distance, essentially, is what you're saying, I think. 
And I think the answer that the scriptures give to that question, which you alluded to, is that the spirit is the way in which Jesus is with us. Um, And I think that really is a place where we need to develop and and meditate on and consider um, the work of the spirit. Um, Because I think if you read particularly, um, I mean, the, the epistles draw this out too, but particularly if you read Um, John 14 to 16, where Jesus himself talks about the Spirit and the Spirit's work. The emphasis again and again is that the Spirit is the means by which I will be with you even when I'm apart from you. Because that is what he's about to prepare his disciples, that's what he is preparing his disciples for. His departure from them, first in his death on the cross, but then he's looking forward also to his ascension that will come soon after that, that he is going to return to his Father but he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you alone. Um, and here, because I will, if I go away, I'll send the comforter to you and he will be with you. And he talks about how the spirit is the means by which the father and the son will dwell in and make a home, uh, make a dwelling place for themselves in um, the disciples, those whom Jesus loves. And I really do think that's something that we should continually meditate on. And, you know, I think unfortunately sometimes we think that when people talk about the Holy Spirit, we might get a little nervous because, well, maybe they're about to start speaking in tongues or like, you know, um, do something crazy. Um, but we need to talk about the Spirit a lot because as Presbyterians, even though, you know, there are things that I personally at least would reject about um, some of that, you know, the, the ways in which the Spirit is talked about today in other traditions of the church. But I do think as Presbyterians and just reform people and Christians, Protestants generally, we should talk about the Spirit all the time. Uh, and primarily, we should be talking about the Spirit being the presence of Christ with his people. Um, and that it is, an, it is because our bodies are vessels of the Spirit that Jesus is closer to us than our breath, that he is in us in some way. Um, not that he is in us and that you know, Jesus doesn't live in our hearts, um, right? Because Jesus lives in heaven. Jesus is a man. He can't fit in my heart. Um, but Jesus is with me always because his spirit is with me and dwells inside of me. And that's the language that's used, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, um, Paul says, or vessels of the spirit. Um, they're filled with the spirit, even, or even as the temple was filled with the presence of God, right? That glory thing, that glory cloud that comes down and fills the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament with the presence of God. That's the picture that Paul's using there in 1 Corinthians 6, right? That, that the Spirit dwells inside of you in that same way, that your body is that same kind of temple or vessel for the Spirit. Um, and so Jesus is always with you. So that's, I know that you know all those things, Donna, but that's, that's where I would just encourage us just to continue to meditate on that reality, um, that he really is with us in that way. And that speaks actually to chapter 12, which I thought was helpful too, the chapter on friendship. You know, Dane talks about how, and this is appropriate. I mean, we can overdo this kind of language. We also, of course, have to, you know, talk simultaneously about Jesus as Lord and King and Master, right? Um, Because the scripture uses those terms as well. But certainly there is, and I think if you read the, and there's something worth thinking about. Like if you read the Gospels, even though Jesus was the Son of God, even though he was, was and is divine, even though he was and is 
the king of creation, like he didn't go around telling John and Peter and Andrew to like just kneel before him all the time, right? And like, don't get too close, guys, right? Because I'm the king, I'm the Lord. Um, I think if you read the Gospels through that lens of these men that he spent time with, you really do begin to build a theology of what it means to be friends with Jesus, for Jesus to, to have a friendship with him, because that is the nature of his relation with these men. I mean, obviously, he was their master, and they related to him that way. They called him that. Um, they submitted to him, you know, sometimes better than others. But, um, but still, there was an intimacy that these men had with him, um, that they talked with him, they enjoyed time with him, they sang together. I mean, I think that's fascinating, right? What do, singing your voice mingling with the voice of the Son of God. Um, but that's what the Gospels say he did with them before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. They sang a hymn or a psalm together. Um, you know, eating together. Um, you know, you think about John uh, leaning back on his breast at the Lord's Supper, um, the institution of the Supper. Just this intimacy that they had with Christ. And I think that's a great picture for us to think about. What does it mean um, Jesus redeems friendship in a way um, with these men and gives us a picture of his continual relationship to us today um, that he is with us even as he was with his the 12 um, that he is with us as well in the very same way um, so anyway those are things i would talk about in terms of jesus compassion his closeness i don't think we can over meditate on the closeness of christ um, to us um, by the means of his spirit um, and we certainly get a picture for what that means, what that looks like by reading the Gospels, both in terms of his compassion, um, but also his friendship as well. And there's also a great section in that chapter on emotion we didn't get time to talk about just now, but Jesus' anger, which I think is really something to think about too. The anger, he talks about John 11 particularly, where Jesus was angry um, because of the death of Lazarus and angry at death itself and against Satan. That's something else also for us to think about the ways in which Jesus is angry at the things that he should be angry at, that we should be angry at um, in a righteous kind of way. I think it's helpful to meditate on as well. All right, friends, let's stand and pray. Lord, we're grateful for this day. We're grateful for all your kindness to us. Um, we do um, um, give you glory, Father. We pray for our friends, um, Graham and Sarah, and that you would take care of them and protect and bless them, even that their time here at the States um, uh, the months that are before them, or the month or so that's before them would be uh, renewing and refreshing and encouraging. And we pray for us as well, Father, that we would continue to meditate on the humanity of Jesus and what Jesus reveals about your heart towards us. And I pray that you will grant us wisdom, Father, as we think about these things, as we continue to read the Gospels and to meditate on the person of Jesus. Um, help us, Father, to know um, that Jesus is with us, that he's always with us, um, because our very bodies are vessels of his Holy Spirit. And um, I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.